I think once people understand what's actually happening, then you are a cheerleader for stock market crashes. I'm going to take that pull quote out and just put it at the top of the episode. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning. Welcome back to the pod. Uh, Got some awesome feedback from you guys from last week's show. Noah Kagan dropping by the show and dropping some knowledge bombs. Today's episode is a burner as well. One of our earliest community members here at the TMBA drops by to share his worldview about, let me just describe it like this. It's basically a entrepreneurship approach to investing or the fractional and passive ownership of profitable companies run by experienced executives. What if your knowledge as an entrepreneur could benefit you greatly as an investor? Something that people don't often say. They say they're two very, very different things. We're going to share a fresh perspective today. Just three news items before we jump into the conversation. The first thing, we did more sales at dynamitejobs.com in quarter one of this year than in 2020 combined. So a sincere thanks to everyone listening here who dropped by the site and gave our services a shot and gave us much-needed feedback on how we can improve. It's absolutely awesome. Speaking of improving, uh, it's been kind of like an undercurrent of the show that those of you interested in landing pages and copywriting have been picking apart my sales copy because, yes, I'm doing it at dynamitejobs.com. I think it's freaking awesome. It's super cool how some of us nerd out on this stuff and swap tips, and that's been really fun. I appreciate that. And speaking of that, this morning I received our first confirmed third-party sale from our directory of expert services over at Dynamite Jobs, which is a very, very new thing. So I wanted to bring it up because hopefully we'll advance this somewhat in the coming weeks and months on the show, but we do have a services directory at Dynamite Jobs for customers of ours who might not have the time to hire and they just want to go direct to an expert service provider or small agency that can solve their particular problem. We'll first confirm sale today. Hopefully we can talk about some of the stories behind those services and how those sales come about in the coming weeks. I just wanted to flag that up because it's so, so cool helping other people make money. So that's the news with the business. We'll continue to keep you updated uh, about the progress of our business portfolio throughout the year. Let's jump into today's conversation, which honestly had an enormous resonance for me. If I'm being honest, I just don't know a lot about stocks, bonds. You know, I kind of grew up in this entrepreneurial world that's a bit suspicious of the stock market. And also really, I put all my personal capital back into my business and into weird things like Bitcoin. And my perspective on that is starting to change because I continue to bump into my contemporaries, you know, not people that are like a generation older than me, but my contemporaries who are doing really well with this stuff and who are encouraging me to think differently. So today's guest is someone we've known the whole way back since the TMBA villa in Bali, if you can remember the that. And he's an incredibly smart guy. And he takes this entrepreneurial worldview to the world of investing. And he thinks that's an asset, which is a perspective that not everyone has. His Twitter handle, by the way, is SS Stock, which is a great follow. His name is Simon Stock, and we've got to say what we're going to share today is not advice, it's just a conversation. (laughs) 
I think today's conversation is really thought-provoking stuff for people that have a general idea of the stock market or might own some index funds, but are looking for a little bit more sophistication in their perspective. Hope to offer that for you today. And for me, it very much resonated, something that I want to do more with in the coming year. Simon's approach is that he uses the stock market primarily as just another way of getting that magical grail of cash flow or just finding good deals. Like that's what we do as entrepreneurs is find good deals and buy them. You know, really not unlike the businesses we talk about on the show all the time. So that was eye-opening for me. So I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. Let's just get right into it. My name is Simon Stock, and I guess you could say I'm a full-time investor. How much money does one need to be a full-time investor? I would say around a million. If you're doing real estate, that gets you about 70000 a year. Stocks, it gets you about the same, but then you're going to get paid out probably half that, so thirty five to 40000 a year. But you're going to get growth that way, so it really just depends on what you're looking for. Could you walk us through some of the math that gets you to this idea that yeah, you're really not in, in the investor category until you have a million dollars liquid cash? Yeah. So I'm talking, if you're looking at like a cap rate of like 7%, right? So maybe an average. What's a cap rate? Uh, capitalization rate. So basically you're a yield. So 7% yield. So a million is going to yield 70,000 in real estate, right? You can depreciate a lot of that income. So you're basically going to get all that cash to use, right? And in stocks, you're also going to get normally a 6 to 7% yield. But what trips people up is they just look at the dividend. So you may see a dividend yield of 3%, but you're really getting 6 or 7%. Talk me through what's the difference between a dividend yield and the overall yield of a stock. Okay, the yield is basically in, in the earnings per share. So if you look at like a Johnson & Johnson and you see a 3% dividend, right? But that's only what they pay out. They keep about half. So usually you can just double that. So that would be a 6% yield. So that would be a million would be 60. You would be generating $60,000. So the math, the way you're getting there is you're basically saying like you can generate a livable income for yourself from that million dollars. Exactly. And that was always my goal. Yeah. And I want to dig into like those details. I'd love that. I just wanted to lay out that figure at the top. But I want to cycle back and talk about a little bit about your journey and how you got to the point where you could have that million dollars and much more, I'm sure, in the first place. So let us know just a little bit of your, your history as an entrepreneur. I had started drop shipping, I think, when we were down there in Bali when I first met you guys. So that was in 2012 about we met. Yeah. And you had a, a surfboard rack drop ship store. Is that correct? Yeah. And at the time, most of these guys weren't even doing drop shipping. I had to convince a lot of them to actually drop ship for me. And I was just like, this is so cool because... You don't need a lot of capital to get started. You can basically use a distributor's capital and sell the products. And then I just kept expanding and expanding. Then we got into oh, we got into all sorts of stuff, furniture, supplements. And then I started putting this stuff on Amazon because at the time there wasn't a lot of people selling these specific products on Amazon. That's crazy. The world changes so fast. <laughs> it does. And now every, everywhere I hear, it's just Amazon, Amazon, Amazon. And I was just like, man, you know, when I was doing it, people thought I was crazy because I think we talked about this and they're like, but Amazon takes 15%. You know, and I was like, but it's a huge marketplace. 
it's worth that 15%. Then we started doing a lot of the FBA. So I actually started buying inventory and sending it into Amazon. But I, you know, I just was reading about this the other day. Someone was talking about this. It's like, once you get to like making a million, two million, three million in revenue a year, you need to start hiring people before you can grow. It becomes very difficult to do on your own. So I was just doing this with me. And I think I had my dad doing customer service and I had like one half-time, part-time shipper, right? This was two, three million dollars a year. It was like thirty, forty thousand dollars net profit with just three people half-assed in this, you know. But <laughs> you start making some money, and, and and then I'm just like, well, I can't really afford to put this back into the business unless I want to hire people because I can't work anymore. My dad was exhausted. The shipper was exhausted. Well, that's a lot of money to move around for such a small return. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point, because as you get growing, you're like, this is a lot more money that's just going to generate a tiny bit more. And then that's when I looked to stocks. I had already bought stocks before, but then I was just like, I'm just going to start buying anything that pays a dividend, anything that looks cheap. I just want to live off of this passive cash flow because it's exhausting. I think we were managing about 16, 1700 SKUs in Amazon. Wow. What year was it that you got a taste for this dividend investing? I think it was 2014, 2015. The funny thing to me is when I started, I was just buying everything. Like I was buying funds, I was buying low yields and high yield. At first, you just look at those high yields, right? And you're just like, ooh, that, that's going to pay me more money. A high yield would be something like a, a fancy... Like an AT&T or a utility company usually have a high yield like I'm talking like that 5 to 7% yields or like a REIT like a real estate investment trust a lot of these are basically paying out a lot of their profits why because like our business or like the business I was talking about the return for them is not worth it it's better for them to send more money to the shareholder because they have no use for it because the the return is so low so a utility company I mean it takes a lot of cash to generate a return from a utility company. But as an investor from the outside, you look at this and you're like, wow, this is paying a 6% yield, a 7% yield. I'm going to get a lot more than, say, buying a Clorox, right? With a Clorox, you're looking at like a 2 to 3% dividend yield. I just had luckily bought a full spectrum of everything that seemed to look cheap, but I kept track of everything on a spreadsheet where I was like, okay, this is what I paid for it. This is what it's worth. And then I added in my dividends over time. And then I also factored in that compound annual growth rate to figure out how much money I was annually generating. And what I noticed was that the low yields in the five-year mark were actually doubling and tripling. And these AT&Ts were still just generating the measly 6-7% per year because there was, there's not much growth, right? Because they're paying out a lot of their cash, so they're not going to retain much to grow. And that's when I started being like, well, how is Clorox doubling in AT&T is only you know, generated 40% total return of my money, and Clorox is up 150%. And that's when I started looking towards the businesses that I was actually investing in. It's almost the same, right? You're looking at your private business, and, and you get $1,000 this month, and you say, where is the best return on my investment, right? But I'm looking at stocks on an individual level, on an individual business level, and I'm looking at how much return are they generating internally. And that's where you get this growth. That's where you get this double 
triple, quadruple your money outside of 10, 15 years. What they call it is a return on invested cash. Let's talk about how you might determine such a thing. Believe it or not, I find the best companies will actually tell you this in their annual reports. Like McDonald's will straight out say, we aim for 22% return on invested cash. Or if you read Nike, Nike says, we try to get 30%. I think Brown Foreman, which is a uh, like your Jack Daniels company, they also do consistently 22%. They tell you how they get that. So how they get that is basically all the invested cash that they have divided by their net income. So they look at how much cash they put in and then how much profit came out. Just like we would do in our private business, right? To say this return was bad, this return was good, right? And then how they grow is basically they retain some of their capital and then they reinvest it. And that's how you get this earnings per share growth. But what I realized was like a Clorox was growing, say, 8, 9, 10% per year. And AT&T is growing 2 3% per year. Well, AT&T looks great that first couple of years, but then you start adding time, 8% per year for 10 years, 20 years, you're starting to crush an AT&T. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's the same as our private businesses, right? We look for the highest rate of return we can find. I mean, that's why someone, these guys, they love SaaS, right? I mean, it takes nothing to generate high, incredible rates of return. And then I go to you and say, well, let's start a trash company. And you're like, well, we got to buy all these trucks, you know, like all the profits got to go into, you know, it's not a real good business. I mean, it could be a good business, but the way I look at them now and say, if I'm going to buy an AT&T, if I'm going to buy a utility company that has to take all these profits and reinvest it back in the company and it earns very little, then you need to buy these businesses really, really cheap to generate the same type of return that you could pay maybe a Hershey's. So I noticed that and I looked at the spreadsheet and that's, that's when I started digging into the actual companies was like, you know, I put a thousand dollars in the Clorox. I put a thousand dollars in the AT&T. Seven years later, AT&T generated 40% total return. Clorox, 150% total return. But it looks expensive, right? Because you see a low yield with the Clorox and you're like, well, I'm going to get more money buying AT&T. It's the same with real estate. Help me to parse that issue of the low yield rate versus the growth rate. It's a little bit confusing to me. Why doesn't a high yield equal a high growth rate? Well, because they're basically giving you all that cash instead of reinvesting it themselves. So it's the same thing like real estate, right? So you look at, like we said, talk a, a cap rate or a yield. It's the same thing as a yield. So a yield is different than like the stock price going up by that percentage. Can you explain that a little bit? So every company has a float, which would be the amount of shares issued to the public. And then what they do is they have a net income and then they divide it by all their float, their shares outstanding. And that gives you an earnings per share. Now, based on that price that you see in the stock that everyone obsesses over, you can divide that price by the earnings per share, and that gives you your yield. They call it the PE, right? The price per earnings, right? And you would take one divided by a PE is going to give you that earnings yield. So different companies are going to have different PEs based on their strategy, essentially. Based on how many shares they have, based on the price of that per share, 
based on entirely their entire you know business model, basically, because not all yields are the same, right? A 5% yield from a Clorox versus a 5% yield from an AT&T with time added with growth, the Clorox will crush the AT&T. Because of the overall growth rate. Right. Because of their ability to generate cash internally. And that's why I always say you have to look at the specific companies. And you see, like with new IPOs and stuff, right? These guys are pricing these stocks extremely expensive because they're estimating in crazy high growth rates. You see some of these stocks that are a thousand PE, right? And and that may be appropriately priced, but it's very difficult to see 10, 20 years out for a stock that's growing that quickly, in my opinion. So PE, would that be like the main thing you're looking at as you're looking across stocks in general? I would say just to be simple, yes. A simple price divided by earnings is going to give you so that PE may be 15 and then, you know, just a one divided by that PE is going to give you your earnings yield, which you could use that earnings yield to compare to treasuries or the real estate or any yield, really. So over the 10 years you've been, you know, 10 years plus at this point, you've been running a portfolio. What have you learned about PE ratios? Like what's your sort of theory on them? I would say they're not all equal. You have to look at the company, right? You have to look at the internal rate of growth because you could pay 30 times PE, right, for Nike and do way better than you could for paying for 15 times AT&T. It really depends on the growth of the company. I think if you, if you want to just do standard, I think uh, if you do old like Benjamin Graham school, he would always say like the old school investor who taught Warren Buffett, right? So he would always say um, 8.5 times earnings is the max you should pay for a company that's not growing at all. And then you could, you could adjust growth, right? So you could say, okay, this company is now growing 10 times per year. So you could just add it and say 8.5 plus 10 is now 18.5. So now the max I would pay for this company is 18.5 times earnings, or that would be the PE, right? So if a company is growing 20 times per year, then you would add 20 plus 15 and say a Nike or something. And you could say, oh, I could pay 30x. This is just a standard rule of a, you know, an easy way to do paper napkin math, I guess you could say. Now, the day in the life of an entrepreneur, I think, is pretty well known to you, to the listening audience. You know, you wake up, you get the coffee, standing meeting with the team, Slack stuff, email, phone calls with clients, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, work. <laughs> Maybe you read a motivational book at lunch if you're lucky. Couple tweets. Couple tweets here and there. I want to know what the day in life, what your stack is. Like, how do you trade? Like, what do you read? Like, how much work does all this require? I like to say it requires very little work, as in once you understand the companies, once you find the companies, and I can list these companies like I that I think are worthy of my time to buy. It's really more or less a waiting game now because you're trying to get these companies at an appropriate price because you can't overpay. Really, all I do is just set up alerts for about 40 or 50 companies that I want, and then I get notified and then I buy. But for the most part, I'm not looking at the day-to-day -day market. I'm not stressing over the day-to-day -day prices. Like it's It really doesn't bother me. Once I'm in the company, 
because you're you're making money off the dividends, right? You're getting sent checks. Do you really care what's happening on the day-to-day basis? I mean, the irony to me of this stuff is that if you buy shares of, say, we talked about Clorox, if you buy shares of this company, you're paying management. You're an owner. You own this company, and you're paying management millions and millions of dollars to run this company. But you want to micromanage you know, the share price. I mean, it's madness to me. If it's a good company and you want to hold it. If one were to go out and buy, you know, a thousand dollars of Clorox, what would be the dividend for that? Just to get a sense for like what these ratios look like. I think it's like two point five now. I think it's come down a little since it kind of skyrocketed during the uh, pandemic for obvious reasons, I believe. But yeah, so about two point five. But I think the earnings yield is like five or six. So you're really earning six. So if you did a thousand, you would be earning six hundred bucks, and you would be getting about, you know, what two fifty. Wait, if you did, if you put a thousand into the stock. Oh, I'm sorry, sixty. Yeah, sixty, 60 bucks. Got yeah, it. Yeah, thousand would be great. Huh? <laughs> now, a lot of entrepreneurs might say, "Well, you know, I could do a lot more with a thousand bucks than get sixty dollars over the course of a year." Well, then I would say you don't need to be investing because, again, I was looking at my specific situation and saying my internal rate was no longer growing. If I tell people all this all the time, if you start a business. And you're earning 30 or 40% return on capital, you're not going to get that. There's no way you're going to get that buying into future earnings. So why even bother? Obviously, the business is way better. The only thing I was wanting to do was my internal rates of return were lower and I wanted to free my time. I mean, you're going to make way more money selling future earnings to somebody else than you will buying future earnings, right? This was just a way to park capital and a park capital in a more you know, profitable way. But it sounds like you love it. I knew even when you were running the surfboard store that like you always had an eye to the market. There was something about it that attracted you. What was that? You have the ability to scoop up businesses that we could never recreate, like the distribution center of Coca-Cola. Like that would take us years to mimic or create. And then in a crash, you could possibly get this business at 10 times earnings. We know as private guys, we're looking at private businesses and we see these at three and five times earnings, right? This is still not included if we had to hire someone full-time to run this thing, right? So you may be looking at seven, eight times earnings. But during a stock market crash, you can scoop up these businesses for this exact same multiple of cash. So to be clear, you're making an interesting parallel here between going to a place like empireflippers.com or buying a small business and doing the same kind of math that you're doing with stocks that you're buying. Absolutely. It's the same thing. Right when that pandemic hit, Discover traded for four times earnings. I mean, you could get a credit card company that's well known for four times earnings. You're probably going to do pretty well. I would be more interested in Discover than a private business at four times earnings. That may be a lot more work. This is just for capital allocation, right? Not necessarily... I could probably make more money internally with a private business, but for those that just want a passive cash flow, buying Discover at 4X is probably going to end pretty well. So you're not going to go back and buy an e-commerce company, another one. I mean, I know you got one going. I'm looking at them now because the stocks are so expensive, right? It's all about what I can get from my money. If the stocks are overpriced, then I'm looking at smaller cap stocks which I would also compare that exactly with a private little e-commerce company. But I would also factor in my time. I mean, small caps usually traditionally always outperform large caps because you get them cheaper. 
and they have a lot more room to grow, right, in their marketplace. Like it's hard for Coke to grow in their marketplace when it's saturated. And so a smaller cap stock, traditionally, if you buy a small cap index, you are going to outperform a large cap index. But I was looking for safety, right? I wanted guaranteed payments from some of the largest, best companies that have been around for hundreds of years, that have the economics of scale, right? I'm factoring risk too. Smaller caps tend to go bankrupt a lot more. Uh, They're a lot more volatile. It just really depends on your goal. I wouldn't even tell people to invest if they're not looking to touch that money for five years plus, because anything can happen with that price. I was going to mention, like, you're deeply invested in the stock market. Maybe we can talk about portfolio composition if you're open to it. We both, you know, met each other right on the heels of of 2009. And if something like 2009 comes along tomorrow or something more profound, how do you think about that? I think, how can I sell some furniture to buy some cheap stocks? (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm excited. This stuff may hurt my ego. You know, when you watch your portfolio get slashed in half, but it does not affect my standard of living. I am still getting paid. And through dividends and annual yields. Well, just mostly dividends. Yeah. The yields are... The yields, you have to sell the stock to realize it. Yeah. I mean, the price of the stock, but the yield is still always happening internally with the company. I see. A dividend is the portion that you get. The way I look at a dividend is my salary. So if I'm looking at a private company and I'm valuing this at five, six, seven X, and I say, I want to hire somebody to run this, there's an internal rate that the the company is retaining their earnings and then I'm getting paid a salary. So this is how I'm comparing a stock to a private company. During a collapse of price, you have the ability to scoop up these businesses even cheaper. You know, what's funny is during 08, if you look at Coke, they're actually raising their dividend. They're making more money than ever while the stock is collapsing. And people are terrified and they're selling and they're liquidating. And and guys like me are just like, you know, we're just licking our chops, man. This is a dream come true because you're getting more shares for less money. I must point out that one of my business mentors came from a brokerage background. I was staying at his wonderful house when it crashed. And he was so excited that he put aside his business for a month and just poured money into the market. And he made like a million bucks in a matter of a couple weeks working at his laptop. I think once people understand what's actually happening, then you are a cheerleader for stock market crashes. I'm going to take that pull quote out and just put it at the top of the episode, Simon. <laughs> people are going to send us hate tweets. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not focusing on that. I'm looking at the earnings of the actual company because this is what's really happening. And the irony for a lot of these companies, let's say a Hershey's or something, right? If you go and look at their annual report and you go to the statement of cash flows and you see what's happening on a cash flow basis, like let's just say they're making 500 million net, right? And they pay 250 million out in um, dividends, but they're, they're taking maybe another 200 million in buying back shares of their stock continuously, basically eliminating those shares, right? Less shares means that the owners have more profits coming to them. So as these stocks collapse, these businesses are still buying back stock. So now they're able to buy back even more stock at an accelerated rate. So now your dividends are increasing even faster. So 
as someone who lives off dividends and as the majority of the companies that I own are continually buying back stock, I want the dividends to rise as fast as possible. And one of the ways for the dividends to rise as fast as possible is for stocks to crash because the companies are able to accumulate more of their shares faster. Would you rather see the stock go up or would you rather just get paid more? I mean, I would rather get paid more. If you run a growing seven or eight figure remote company, your next productive team member could be just one simple phone call away. Check it out. I'm running an ad for our own stuff. How cool. This week's sponsor is our very own done-for-you recruiting service for remote companies, courtesy of dynamitejobs.com. You can learn more at dynamitejobs.com slash remote dash recruiting. Our process starts with a simple, free, no obligation phone call with one of our senior recruiters and often the boss man himself. We'll get a sense for your company, your mission, the candidates you're seeking. We then go out and execute the entire job search on your behalf. That includes marketing to our database as well as taking a lot of the budget from the service fee and going out and proactively marketing your job to third-party sites, services, communities, and so on to ensure you get the best candidates for each individual job. Again, we know how to do all this stuff. We perform all the filtering, the interviews, and the assessments on your behalf. So basically, we're delivering you qualified candidates who are interested in your position, who understand your needs, and are looking to have that final conversation with you about you know whether or not it's a good fit. So obviously, hiring can be a total pain in the butt, but the team at Dynamite Jobs does this stuff every day. We understand remote-first businesses and have the systems and people in place do the job quick and reliably on your behalf. So with our new done-for-you recruiting services, you can stay focused or your team focused on what you guys do best, and we'll take care of the hiring on your behalf. To learn more, head on over to dynamitejobs.com slash remote dash recruiting, schedule a call, or drop us an email, team at dynamitejobs.com. I'm so glad we're talking about dividend returns because you know I have a couple of friends in my life who've really opened my eyes to this the past year. And I've always kind of been like tacitly in this crowd of like vaguely suspicious of the stock market because of like my experience in 2009 and like watching all these movies where people involved in the stock market are demonized. Give us like your kind of philosophical perspective on like this idea that it's an unfair playing field, that it's rigged. How do you think about that stuff? There is a nasty side of it where people are just pumping this stuff up. I feel like it's not so unfair. It's more people don't really know what they're buying. I mean, these are businesses and you can't pay 50 times earnings for a business and expect to do well. There is this whole other side of this auction. And with all this liquidity, it can go crazy. The funny thing to me is when you have a lot of people trying to buy one certain stock, you have to realize that you know, it's going to send the price up. And when everyone's buying the same thing, it's probably not a good deal. You know, the irony too is if you also pay attention to the businesses, that most of the owners, they're liquidating these shares to you at the top of these peaks. They know that the stock is overpriced. It's very hard to get burned if you're focusing on the business and you're watching the business and you're watching insiders, right? So I think Microsoft has been hitting its top. And the execs in Microsoft have been unloading shares like crazy. Like, why would they do that if they don't think the stock is overpriced? 
And I think if you're watching the business the way that these are supposed to be watched, it brings a lot more sanity and zen to the market instead of just trying to buy the hype. Because eventually, always, stock prices reflect the earnings capacity of a business. And if you're buying you know, 50, 60 times earnings, I mean, you might be waiting a while before the earnings catch up. Could be years. They're like, well, you're just you don't want me to make money. You know, you I mean, people say the same thing to me, like, why didn't you recommend, you know, GameStop? And I was like, because it's completely disconnected from the earnings capacity of the business. It doesn't stay up forever. And maybe you can get in and maybe you can get out. But I mean, that's the craziness to me that I really am not interested in. I don't want to be reliant on someone else's opinion of what my shares are worth. This is kind of idea that I've seen this, this cycle where, you know, if you don't have a lot of capital, you know, you raise capital from investors or, you know, you take a loan out or a credit card and you take 20 grand and you drive the investment of that capital in your own small business. You buy surfboard racks and you sell them on Amazon and you buy click campaigns and stuff. You start to get up to this point where now you got, you know, a couple hundred thousand, now you got half a million and you're stacking this cash and you start to move it into fractional ownership of these larger companies. You're essentially kind of doing the same thing, except your gear ratio is a lot lower. So you're going to make less returns. But you know, you start to see that dividend income come in where now you're making $15,000 a year dividend income like you would as a landlord or whatever. And it's sort of like, man, that's pretty sweet. And you get it up to the million, million and a half figures you're talking about. And now all of a sudden, like my pretty decent digital nomad lifestyle is completely funded by my fractional ownership in, in these companies that require none of my time, essentially. Right. And you get some decent raises. Like I, I always say... Um the best, if you're looking at like a two to four percent dividend yield, you're probably going to get anywhere from a six to eight percent dividend increase per year. Why is that? Uh, it's just from the retained earnings and the buybacks and the growth of the companies. I think any company looking at maybe organic sales of like two or three percent, you know, buybacks add another percentage, some merger and acquisitions maybe add another point. So it's just that internal reinvestment. It just depends on really what your goal is. I mean, do you want a lot of cash? I kind of wanted the best of both worlds. I kind of wanted the management and the company to take that cash and grow some for me. And then I wanted to just spend and not have to worry and not have to worry. I mean, I spend, I would say, 90% of my dividends. I mean, I'm not trying to reinvest, right? I'm letting the companies do that for me, right? If I wanted to spend time allocating you know, capital every month, then I would probably be looking at real estate or, you know, maybe something with a higher yield. Can you talk about your portfolio composition by percentage? You mean like the industries that I'm in or are you talking like bonds or? Total net worth I was thinking of actually. Uh, I would say 25, I mean, I'm going to count my house 20% and then I'm rest is all equities. No bonds, 80, 20%, it's 80% equities, 20% house. Do you have any cash equivalents uh, as part of your portfolio or anything? Yeah, I guess 10% cash, but I, you know, that none of this matters to me. I'm just looking, all that portfolio allocation changes based on price. I'm not looking at a certain percentage and say, man, I only have 50% in equities or 60%. I'm just looking for deals. Like if that, if that happens to be a hundred percent equities, man, <laughs> I'll sell my house to buy Hershey's at 10 times earnings and be like, I don't have any real estate. Who cares? Now 
I own a lot of index funds because that's the, what everybody says. Go to you know Betterment or whatever robo fund and put a bunch of money in there and watch it you know grow. This is like going to show my ultimate naivete. There's a lot of companies in there that pay dividends. Who's getting those dividends when the fund is just buying the stock? Well, you're getting those dividends still, and it's just getting reinvested. I mean, it depends on the index fund what they're doing. But you could get checks. Yeah. I mean, there would be cash deposits in your bank account. So right now, if I have Betterment.com, like those dividends probably just going back into my Betterment account. Yeah, it's probably based on your Betterment settings. You probably have it set to reinvest. I see. But you could totally be getting cash deposits and pulling them out. You know, That's interesting. It's no different than what I do. Index is just a collection of the same businesses. Actually, could you describe that for us? Like what an index fund is and do you use them? Yeah, it's a legal. In- I don't do indexes because I think I can, at least I like to think I can value companies and index funds. You know, I kind of have a problem with some index funds. It's usually based off like market cap. And so as a market cap grows, and I'm saying the size of a company grows. So if you look at like the S&P 500 index, like I think right now 20% of that fund is going straight to tech. So you're not quite as diverse as you think you are. But I mean, for someone who doesn't want to, you know, value individual stocks, you're still getting what, 500 of the USA's best businesses, that's, that's fine. And that's all an index is. It's just a collection. But more of your money is going to be allocated to more overpriced stocks, which unfortunately, that's the way indexes are built so they can handle more money for more fees. Basically, I just individually pick out these companies. Now, when you hear that, so many people say, well, so many hedge funds like lost money relative to the market over the last 10-year period. Don't be a dummy. Don't pick stocks just by index funds. What's your response to that? Well, I would say, well, how are all these P guys buying private businesses? I mean, you're buying private businesses. How? I mean, people are good at it and people are bad at it. It's so funny because, you know, a lot of good investors normally have a very good sense of what a business is and what it does, right? I mean, I think for the average person who doesn't care about business and index is fine. You're still participating in the productivity of the US. But for people like us that like the numbers to like to maximize returns, if you can buy an individual business, you can buy a stock. I mean, it's it literally is no different. It's a little more complicated, I think, because you got shares. And I think people get hung up on the price they look to the market to tell them what this business is worth. I'm not, I'm not looking to the market. I, I have an idea of what share should be worth well before I'm looking at the price of the stock. You know, If you can three, four times a private business and you have an idea what it's worth, then you should be able to look at a net income of a public business and then you know, divide that by the shares and have an idea and say, okay, this should be worth 15 times net income based on the amount of shares. And have some idea, and then you look at the market, and it's fifty times earnings, and you're like, "Well, bummer, that's not for me today." You know. So you don't think of the stock market as a casino? No, I think of it as something I can take advantage of when it's in my favor. What are some of the mistakes you've made in the past decade investing? I would say not being patient. Now I'm I I, I tend to be too patient. I wait 10 years before I buy something that I want that's finally attractive. It does come down. 
And I think so. I you know I bought a lot of that were overpriced, and I'm still the returns are, are shit. You know, even though I'm like, yeah, I'm excited because I own this company. But I mean, if you want to make money or do you want to own cool companies? I I don't know. That's the way I think of it now. Is you have an idea of valuation and you stick to it. And I think that's been the biggest mistake is just not being patient, overpaying. Sometimes it works. You know, if you look at like a Tesla, I mean, and I think I was even telling Ian, stay the hell away. But it doesn't go on forever. And maybe it does, but it's, I just don't want to be tied to the disconnect from earnings and price. That's how I get burned. That's how I've always got burned. I mean, I bought GoPro. It was 40 a share. Everyone's, oh yeah, this is a great company. Then it went to 80. And then I looked at the financials and I was like, oh, I'm out of here. Wow. And then it, I sold it. What was the signal when you looked at the, the financials? I think it was just trading at a very high multiple. I'm not a big fan of tech. Like you have guys every day waking up going, I'm going to disrupt this company. Well, no one wakes up and says, I'm going to disrupt toilet paper. I'm going <laughs> to disrupt chocolate. I'm going to disrupt alcohol. I, <laughs> Like, I don't want to be owning these tech companies that these kids are coming for, you know? So GoPro, people people came for it. I mean, all you are is a brand. You're buying what overpriced recorders and people come at you, you know? And then I think the stock collapsed to $10 a share because the, that growth that was factored in was no longer there. Now, the unique thing about constructing a portfolio as you have is that you can essentially walk away and regard more or less regardless of what's going on in the marketplace, you can just stack your dividend checks and live life that way. And I want to underline this idea because this is actually an idea that has really affected my thinking in the past year because I have a friend like you who's constructed a, a really powerful dividend portfolio. And it's awesome. I mean, it's really, really cool. And I just really hadn't thought of it that way for whatever reason. I thought, you know, kind of like thinking, oh, you got to sell a stock to like get your money out of it. And can you just talk around that idea a little bit of this like potential to build just a, a money printing machine, essentially? Yeah, I think I just took it, you know, it's just four hour work week applied to stocks. I just wanted the cash flow of a business. I didn't want to be reliant on the price. And I just wanted ever increasing, you know, income streams. It's the same way we started these businesses to, you know, free up our time. I know people have millions of dollars and they watch that market every day and trade. I mean, that is not, that is stressful as shit to me. And you're reliant on the opinion of the market to make money. And it's not always roses, you know. I just wanted to be completely disconnected. And I think if you focus on the business, it allows you to completely disconnect. You're a pretty cool dude. Let's put it that way. <laughs> but, you know, one thing I know about you is that you're a total nerd. You read books all the time. And I'm wondering if you could let us know sort of some of your favorite books about investing, about running businesses or whatever. Some things that affected the way you approach investing. I would say the most important book that I read was not even a book, was just Warren Buffett's Letters to Shareholders. That's where it started to click for me to say, this is a business. These are businesses. Like he wanted to own businesses at cheaper prices instead of acquiring entire businesses in its entirety, right? So if you go to like some of these, say, small cap businesses, right? You may pay 30 to 40 times earnings for the entire business, right? And Warren Buffett's like in his shareholders, he's like, 
why would I do that when I can buy fractional businesses, shares of businesses, for 20 or 30 times and make a lot more money and we don't even have to do anything? That made me really realize that, hey, these are businesses that I can add to my portfolio, that I can add in, a, in the same thinking of a private ownership. I treat them as private businesses that I own. I have a spreadsheet that shows how much I'm earning based on how much I bought, and then you know the total earnings yield, and then the total dividend. And then I have an estimated growth. To me, that is no different than owning you know, another, say, a, you know, a private label business that generates a certain amount of you know, cash. His letters to shareholders made you realize that there's no different than buying an entire business. There's no different than buying a fractional share business. I would say they're, qu- they're quite entertaining to read too for me because they remind me a little bit of like Paul Graham's essays in that like you just like to watch them think. And they're quite frank. Yeah, he's completely honest. I love how he points out his mistakes too. You know, like most people aren't doing that. I'm willing to give my money to anyone who's going to sit and wait for deals. Like I, instead of just trying to buy something because there's pressure, like he's sitting on a hundred billion just going, well, this is where we are. I mean, that's <laughs> rare. That's really rare. Most fund managers are, are buying anything and everything. What about uh, like daily sources of information? In the investing space, there's so many big businesses that are selling these shovels to investors like yourself. Like, you know, Motley Fool is one everybody knows. A lot of people go to, you know, investing Twitter. What are some of the, your preferred sources of information that our listeners could dip their toes into? Say you want to follow any business, you would just, I would just Google that business and go to their investor relations page and sign up for their email alerts for anything about that business. That way you're getting it direct from them instead of this third-party twist. And another site that I do that is, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Seeking Alpha. Mm -hmm. I just follow all of the stocks on there. Again, this is, most of this day-to-day stuff is, I'm not interested in, I'm just looking at the annual reports. And alpha is a technical term. They're not talking about a alpha male chimpanzee or whatever. Yeah, yeah. The uh, I forget what it is. Yeah, I you know, dude, half the time I don't even. That's a lot of the stuff is options too that I don't even do anymore, and I can't remember half this stuff. I mean, the stuff that I was doing back in 2014, like selling put options, was so risky. I mean, it's just crazy. <laughs> but you know, you're older and wiser. You learn, right? But also, like, I mean, do you agree with this? Like, can you get rich investing? Um, I think you can get lucky. I don't see it happen a lot. I see, well, think of the, the richest people we know is probably business owners. I don't know any rich traders. I, I don't. I know guys that have done well. I know it was a lot of work. Um, I'm sure there are technical traders. I just don't have the patience for that. I think you're just, you're almost kind of just reliant on luck of what happens in the market. I think the progression that I see amongst my wealthiest friends are, you know, you get rich with your small business and you stay rich. And part of staying rich is having that dividend income every year. So you're not spending down your principal. That's another good point. I always tell people to focus on the cash flow and not the principal. Because again, if you're relying on that principal and you're in the market, like that's why they tell uh, people who are about to retire to go more heavily in bonds, right? They do these ladder bonds to say this bond will expire. Can you explain what a bond is from your, how you think about them? Because everybody says stocks and bonds. And for me, stocks are a lot clearer what they are. 
Yeah, bond is just fixed yield, basically. It's So a company will raise money via a bond. Most of the people that are buying these are insurance companies and pension funds for asset liability matching purposes, right? When people are retiring, they need specific bonds to mature, and then that cash comes back to them, and then they're giving it to their pensions. There is no reason I need a bond because I'm relying on the cash flow from the companies. And I think that's another why I'm so disconnected from the day-to-day is I don't, I'm not relying on the principal to live off of. And that's like you pointed out. A lot of these people going into retirement, they're looking to sell percentages of their net worth to generate cash to live off of, where I'm just focusing on the cash flow. And this is the approach my smartest investing friends are telling me this. So I'm, I want to flag that up as well. Yeah. And I'm living on dividends that are growing, you know, six and 7%, 8% per year. I mean, who cares what the principal? I mean, it's the same deal if you, if you, if you own like laundromats or whatever that are paying you out, like, and the neighborhood gets a little bit worse, but your customers are still coming. It's like, yeah. I mean, I say this all the time. If you buy a hundred thousand dollar apartment and you're getting $10,000 a year from rent, and it's like someone knocking on your door and and offering you $50,000 and you're like, I don't give a shit, man, get away. But you see this in the market and people are like, I'll take 50,000 right? <laughs> because you have multiple people offering 50, you know, like, but, but you forgot that it's generating $10,000, right? You're like, this is, this is crazy for me to accept this price. Now, a lot of people listening to the show are foregoing, you know, investing in the stock market to invest in crypto. What's your general take on that? I stay away from crypto because, again, it's still reliant on the opinions. I still, I mean, there's no, I want to see some kind of intrinsic value. And from my opinion, crypto has no intrinsic value. I mean, it's reliant on the ability of more people to accept it. I think it's a lot less riskier than it was. Yeah, it's like every year that it exists. Yeah, totally. And and now more banks are like, hey, yeah, well, you can trade it with us. I mean, they, they want the fees, but I really don't know. It obviously people have done well and you know I, I hope they continue to do well. But again, I want the cash flow. I prefer productive assets over this cash flow over store of value or uh, cash pile. Again, if you're I mean, if you're buying crypto hoping to retire, I mean you could you could see a drop and then you 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 know, it's just I don't know. That stuff makes me nervous, man. <laughs> I, I I like to sleep well at night. I just want to wake up with my $1,000 dividend deposits and, and go about my day. How much money... There's this concept in uh, my book. I borrowed it directly from Jason Cohen. It's called the Freedom Line. It's the amount of money that you need to not consider financial questions for the rest of your life. Which city do you live in currently? I'm in LA, downtown. So a bit more here. Yeah, what is that number? So I posted this... On Twitter the other day, I think about there was a study for happiness, for income. And it was saying it kind of maxes out at $75,000 a year in income. That's about a $2.2 million portfolio. But again, this is for dumping that cash. I mean, if you start earlier, you need a lot less, right? I still think there's no reason to be looking at stocks if you have a private business. You're going to make way more money. The returns are higher. I don't think there's anything wrong with taking some cash off the table for alternative investments, but I don't think you should be trying to use the stock market as your number one income generator. But I think once you get up to that amount, you know, I think $75,000 a year in dividends, you're 
pretty well set. So that's about 2.2 mil. That's cool. That's a lovely answer. Simon, you're like an OG four-hour work weeker. You've embodied it in so many different ways. Any kind of a parting shots or advice that you have for listeners here today? I would just say treat stocks like businesses, the way they're designed to be treated if you want to do well. Consider risk and consider your time. I mean, time is the most valuable asset we have. And, you know, I don't want to be spending it, you know, in front of the computer all the time. So these things that can pay us without us being there is the ultimate life accelerator, I feel like. Instead of waiting until we're 65, we can do this, you know, in our 30s. There's no need to wait. That's awesome. Simon Stocks, thanks for dropping by the show. Thank you so much. Shout out to my guy, Simon Stock. What a great conversation. Give him a follow on Twitter. That's at SS Stock. And uh, guaranteed to learn valuable stuff there. Let us know your thoughts on this one. What do you think about Simon's approach of treating stocks like any other business you would own? That was a big eye-opener and ability for me to understand what otherwise is a bit complex. Would love to hear your thoughts. Record a message, send a Loom video, or just drop me an email, dan at tropicalmba.com. That's it. And as always, we'll be back next Thursday morning. See you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.